The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Coat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast. It's the show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students drinking from that fire hose, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler, and I've got good news, Short Coats, because our... Our plate of podcasters holds heaping portions of delightfully presented medical students, including the zesty M2 Shirayu Shukla. Hello. The buttery smooth M2 Jacob Lamb joins us. Hello. A savory mouthful indeed is M2 Matt Engelkin. Howdy. And enjoy a forkful of the honeyed PA2 Ariel Andalov. Hi. <laughs> you, you don't want to be the honeyed... Do you guys ever think about how delicious you might be, like if people were to consume you? <laughs> I mean, you know, does that ever occur to you before? I don't support cannibalism per se. I think that would be a difficult position to take. But I'm I mean, cannibalism neutral, there, you know. But. I'm trying to think of what would be like good cuts of meat because, like, they talked about it in in anatomy, where like the psoas is what you get from tenderloins, but like ours are tiny since we're bipedal. So it's like, what would what would a different species want to eat off of us that would actually like be good? Thigh meat. Thigh. Thigh meat. That's yeah. That's fair. By the yeah. way, yeah. I want to make it clear: I do not advocate cannibalism. Listeners, don't engage in cannibalism. I think it's important for me to come out and say that right now. I don't think you should engage in cannibalism, no matter no matter how delicious your companions in life are. I will say I was visiting my partner in San Diego over summer and there was a cannibalism exhibit at the Museum of Us, formerly known as the Museum of Man. And a large part of it was devoted to how like consumption of human stuff is medicinal or was considered medicinal yeah. at one point in time. So like the f- if you put like a skull outside in the heat, it'll grow fungus on it. And that's considered something that's like very helpful for a lot of ailments. I mean, eating that fungus. So. It, it worked for Jonas Salk, right? He's the penicillin and, guy? No, yeah. he was the polio guy. Who's the penicillin guy? I don't remember. We just had a test yeah, they, on this. Yeah. They told us it's recently. It's out. Uh, <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> it worked for the penicillin guy, you know. Unfortunately, I think that was a melon and not a human skull, but... Yeah. The no. same thing. Potato, potato. <laughs> you never know. You got to try everything. Just throw it at the wall and see what sticks. Anyway, as another generation of pre-meds begins panicking about what activities will look best on a resume, let's ask you guys that have already been through the journey about your opinions on that that business. Specifically the the yeah, like like what activities before undergrad have been most helpful in medical school? Like now that you're here. I would say anything that like deals with actual patient interaction would probably be the most helpful. For me, I did my EMT certification like two summers before I went to medical school. 
And while I didn't end up working as an EMT because of COVID, the fact that I was able to at least ride in an ambulance for a couple of days and like work in a hospital for a couple of days, just dealing with patients and like going through the problem solving aspect of it. I think that taught me more about what like medicine would be like than I guess anything like volunteering, for example. You didn't think volunteering was... I mean, volunteering was helpful. And I think that I, I mean, I also volunteered at different places and the aspect of helping people is great. But as far as how medically relevant it is, I think it depends on what you volunteer for then rather than just doing it for the paper, I guess. Yeah, kind of going off of what you said, I think the probably the best thing I did in undergrad is I was a tutor for three years and kind of similar to what Shirayu said, it wasn't, you know, patient interaction, but it was people interaction. So you could see like what actually helps when like they're nervous or stressed or whatever, because like, I mean, now that I have a little bit more experience in the medical field, it's like people can come in with issues, but fixing those issues is not necessarily always why they come in it's about like making sure that they feel comfortable making sure they know what's going on it's not just like in tutoring answering their homework questions it's like making sure that oh like i know one year one of the classes had three different math teachers because like some weird stuff happened so even if they didn't come in for math you'd still want to be like so how's you know how's math going like are you stressed about that is that like worrying you and a lot of times they'd be like yeah like, that's a huge thing on my plate. I'm not here for math, but, like, I still want to talk about it. And so little things like that, I think, have been really helpful in the first little bit of patient interaction I've gotten. Sounds like you're talking about reading people, learning how to read people. Yeah. And I think also, like like Matt was saying, like, knowing what is important to people and what kind of their goals are or whatever. I was in an organization in undergrad for kind of, like, HIV counseling and testing and that was where I was first exposed to like the concept of motivational interviewing which is something we learn a lot about in med school or PA school and yes I think like getting that experience with people and kind of knowing how to like figure out what they care about basically in a more structured way was helpful or one of the most helpful things I did coming in. Yeah I kind of agree with like all you guys like it's not really necessarily about, like, how relevant to medical school it is. Like, I think most of my activities, I didn't really, like, I don't really use, like, the content itself. But just, like, it teaches you skills of, like, how to be a leader, how to talk to people like a normal person, how to be on time, like, responsible, manage. It's, like, it's all about the skills and what you gain out of the activities, not necessarily the activity itself. My uh, my sophomore year of college, for one of our finals, we had to write a engineering paper about, like, something that failed, why it failed in, like, an engineering way, and kind of, like, the fallout from it. And the entire point of it was to write it in a way that, like, had all the engineering knowledge, had all the facts, but was a way that a normal person could read. And I think out of, like, my entire degree, that was one of the most important things I did. It wasn't even, like, related to what and it was in statics and like it's an important class but it's not the most important class but from like an early time always being like okay so you're doing this cool stuff now how do you explain it to people right not just like engineers and like now that we're here how do we explain things that we're doing to patients rather than like doctors and pas and med students like how do we make it approachable for everybody and not just the ones that have gone to school for as long as we have 
but also just learning how to communicate with people in general, I think is, is a huge, is a huge deal. And you think, oh, well, I'm going to get that anyway, because I'm communicating with people all the time. But I've met a lot of, not med students, but I've met a lot of people who are poor communicators <laughs> and who maybe could have used a little extra, a little extra help in that, in that regard, especially when they're responsible for other people. One of the things that I did in college was I actually did stand up comedy a lot in college. Ooh. And I feel like that's helped me a lot. And like that'll that'll give you a thick skin anyway. Exactly. And I feel like more importantly, it kind of like I feel like I'm easily able to establish rapport with a patient because like or like a simulated patient or whatever, because I can just make them laugh or like riff off of them. And I think I remember doing my ECEs in like oncology last some last year. And like, even though they were like dealing with serious issues, I just remember like when I was interviewing them, I was able to make them laugh just because mm-hmm. of like, I guess all those skills that I learned from doing stand up. And yeah, feel free to take my cannibalism bit. That should, I will. <laughs> that should help. It's in here. Yeah. yeah. I actually, most of the, I, so I started doing it again this summer and uh, I actually have a little joke notebook that I go around and like just carry on in my pocket the whole day. So I'll write down little jokes. And so that's going in the notebook right after this. <laughs> That's good. You can like pass it off as like, oh, I'm writing notes about this patient case. That's exactly, what I, like. <laughs> that's exactly what I do. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, I'm just writing stuff about this patient and really just me making fun of <laughs> and, and, you know, having a physical notebook sort of takes the, the, the curse of putting it on your phone out of that because, you know. I can at least it, be, it used to be that you didn't want to whip out your phone in a, in a in the hospital because it meant that you weren't paying it. They, they People thought you were scrolling through, you know. Facebook or whatever. Right. It appears more professional. Yeah. Even though it doesn't. A, I, <laughs> <laughs> the appearance say, of professionalism. Is- I will say like developing rapport is one of those things that like I feel like it's hard to teach because they're like ask them about how their drive-in was and it's like no. The, <laughs> the last thing I want to talk about when I'm in the doctor's office is like what my drive-in was like. It's like, man, parking was tough, wasn't it? It's like, you know. For, yeah. Do you have yeah, another well, go-to, Matt? Um, you got you to replace it with something. No, I mean, I don't know. Usually I just, like, ask them about what, like, their family, if there's somebody else in the room, or, like, if they're, like, wearing, like, an Iowa shirt, be like, oh, I, I go to Iowa. <laughs> 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 but then see what they're interested in you know a lot of times it's like well the other thing that i've noticed is like i was able to work in a hospital over the summer and when a patient comes in they they usually don't come in to talk about the weather they're like my knee hurts can we talk about that and yeah. then you can establish rapport when they're like oh i was you know riding my bike and then you're like oh like i bike all the time it's great kind of like riffing off of them like shirayu said but they kind of teach us to like you have to have some sort of rapport building in the very beginning and it's like patients don't want to build rapport they want to be treated obviously building rapport is essential but it's one of those things that i feel like if you force rapport to be built then it just comes off as disingenuous just walk in and compliment them i mean i think it works for building relationships but if you force it right away it's not i like your i like your I like your beard. <laughs> you can try that. <laughs> little, hit, little tips and tricks from Dave that he's learned from his 52 years of communicating on this earth. I don't know. I actually talked about the weather a lot when as my go-to rapport builder. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, how is it driving? <laughs> you know, it's a it's a good Matt one to start with. Matt looks down upon you. Yeah. No, my, how dare you? I think my favorite go-to was like, I was a medical assistant for a couple of years before school. And 
I mean, honestly, I think it's sort of an artificial situation in school because like we're kind of pretending that we're maybe in a clinic. Right. And at that point, you'd probably have patients that you see consistently. So realistically, right on our ECEs, like we see people ask, like, how's your dog? Like, how's your kid going to the football game this weekend or something like that? But like if you're meeting someone for the first time, the weather, Iowa, it's a neutral topic. The it weekend. Topic. I love asking about the weekend. I'm like, so what are you doing for this weekend? Even if it's like Monday, I'm like, <laughs> how was your weekend? No one wants to talk about Tuesday. <laughs> you know, now that I think about it, I guess they don't ever specify that it's the first time we're meeting these simulated patients, is it? <laughs> oh. <laughs> just go so in what and if, ask him. What if you go in and just make up a random fact and be like, oh my God, how was your daughter's wedding? <laughs> Holy shit. Just make them roll with just it. Make them like, roll you're with the comedian now. Damn. Yes, and? <laughs> I really want to try that on the next one. Oh, that'd be so good. Yeah. You're going to get dinged for it. <laughs> But, I mean, it's you I know, mean, it's not wow. great. It, uh, worth I, a shot just for fun. You know, I love this idea. I think it's do it. Our facilitator's just like, what was that about? <laughs> it's like it's a simulated interview. Like, yeah, I'm assuming you're a patient I've seen before. Yeah, so. yeah. They're not that? grading the quality of a report, yeah. just that we tried to do yeah. it. I made a story. You could just say, hey, I go to Iowa. and <laughs> Sorry, Matt. Sorry. I see you're at uh, UIHC. I go there. <laughs> that's what my, that's that's what what my coach says. says. We're, we're there right now. <laughs> you're from Iowa? That's where I live, too. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I think I'm trying that next simulated patient, just walking in. Okay. Pretend like I know them. <laughs> We've been friends for years. Yeah. I mean, you know their name before you walk in. So like, yeah. just go I in. ran into your ex-girlfriend the other day. <laughs> She's looking pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh God. Well, I mean, there's, there's also the you know, getting back to, <laughs> <was> derailed. <laughs> getting back for a moment. There are all these stats that you have to sort of count as being valuable before you get to medical school. And I know like, for instance, you know, PAs have to do a, a ton of clinical experiences and, and things like that. You know, there's a specific number of hours, I think for PAs that isn't, isn't that the case that it's like yeah. 500 or a thousand, isn't it? It's a zillion. Most places average about a thousand. Some will take 500. I want to say Iowa doesn't have an exact amount they require and some programs are like that but it's generally accepted that they want at least six months to a year of full-time work i see a lot of questions online from people who are like do i have enough hours and there doesn't seem to be a great answer for that because it's different for every institution and you know lots of places don't really give you a number to hit or anything like that i think I think that's a pretty subjective question to ask, though. Uh, yeah, that's I mean, why that's what always strikes like, me about this question is like, well, what'd you get out of it, I guess? Is, yeah, you kind of keep going until you're just like, I, I'm not getting anything out of this anymore. Right. Or I, my questions have been answered. Yeah. You know, kind of. Kind yeah, of stuff. I think it's, this is it's an indication of like the box checking yeah. thing that we always like to discourage people from doing, you know, like how many hours do I need? I think it's really the most important thing for like all of like the application stuff is just like can you talk about it like how did it change you how is it important to you like just find those activities that like you really enjoy doing and just continue them like long term i'd say my my favorite my favorite stat 
that some that I think some people feel like they have to have is the number of publications that they have as an undergrad, which cracks me up every time because that's not a that's not a common thing at all. It's not, but then when you look like I was I actually applied MD PhD at a lot of schools and when you look at it, they like give the number that they've had from undergraduate work. So like our MD PhD students came in with an average of like, I don't know, two that they either published during undergrad or undergrad research that was published after the fact. So it is kind of weird. And I know a lot of times, like in my research lab, it was like, we can get you on this paper. We can get you on this paper. And like, I got zero papers out of it, but it was a lot of talking about papers. It wasn't like, what research are you doing is important. It was just like, can we get it? Like, can we get tangible knowledge that you actually did something important? It's important though. I mean, I don't know. Maddie Walleen commented on on this particular question on in our co-host group. And and she's like, I'm just getting a paper now. And she's an MD PhD student. I don't know. I think research is this thing you see as like something that's supposed to get your papers and maybe it does but i also feel like it opens a lot of doors and kind of gives you more opportunities than people think for like me in college i did not like doing research i'm not a type of person who can just sit at a bench and like wait for like stuff to yeah appear so uh, my my mentor asked me what i wanted to do and i was like well do you have any like things that are creative that i could do so my research like what i did for research was i actually made a documentary about people who had parkinson's disease and that was like my contribution contribution to research. I feel like there's ways you can like be a part of the field and then do things you actually like that can connect it back. But it doesn't always have to be just writing a paper. I like that. I like that. I, I think. I, yeah, I don't. I, I think it's going to be I think it's less common for undergrads to have a paper. And I and I and I I like the idea that you can do more than just, you know. Yeah. Use it as more a than one more than one thing. Basically. Yeah. Use it as like an opportunity, not like a. Don't use it as like a like a solidified path. Right. Also, probably depends on like the institution. Like, if you want to go to more research heavy schools like Stanford, or or you want to go to MSTP, it might help a little bit more. But like, I don't think anyone should like and also expect to get a paper necessarily. And also, like, like you said before, like I think you should do research because you enjoy it, not just because I want a paper for my resume. This is what we keep saying on this show. Do 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 stuff because you want to do it. Do stuff because you can see the value in it. But don't do it necessarily to just satisfy some arbitrary number that may or may not actually exist. Kind of going off of that, I think one, well, not I think, one thing that's really important for medical school, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Ariel, PA school applications is volunteering. And specifically, I know that they ask for the number of volunteer hours you have. So that's definitely one of those counting stats that like matters. But even in that, I feel like there's a lot of different volunteering experiences that all have their own like kind of flavor. I know one of my volunteer experiences was dominated by just like restocking cabinets and folding bed sheets. And I felt like that was that ended up being pretty useless for like what I'm actually doing as a med student, what I hope to be doing as a doctor. But then I had another experience where I just worked at my hometown hospital in admissions and I took patients to like x-ray or for like the same day surgery suites. 
those kind of things. So I got to talk to every patient for like a minute or so. Be like, so how are you doing? Like, how are you feeling? I'm from Iowa. XYZ. I'm from <laughs> Iowa. Actually, actually, like, I live here. And yeah. be fun because every once in a while people would see my last name and be like, oh, Anglican, like, do you know so-and-so? And But even though, like, that was... Small town Iowa vibe. It is there. a small town Iowa vibe. Even though it's, you know, like, some people are like, oh, admissions, like, who cares? But I found it was a chance to, like, connect one-on-one with patients and, like, be able to see them kind of in in a setting that we don't see them in as in like med school because in med school we see them in the clinic we see them like pre-op post-op if you're going into like a surgical specialty but just seeing them like get in and be like oh i'm kind of nervous for my surgery that's it's like it was a cool experience to have that's a good point there is you just being able to see the the other parts of the what's the word I'm looking for? The other parts of their their journey through medicine, you know, like through healthcare. Mm-hmm. That seems like a a pretty useful thing to to be able to to experience. It gives you a perspective on what they're going through, and I think if you know what they're going through, then you can like in the future you're gonna be more like supportive of that or more empathetic towards them for sure. That was one cool thing I got to do over the summer. So like I've said a couple times, I was able to work in a hospital and like. In a way that, you know, wasn't graded and wasn't, like, as strict as it is when you go through your clinicals. And so every once in a while when a patient came in, especially the trauma cases, I did it for most of the trauma cases where I'd just be like, all right, I'm going to, like, just kind of follow the patient around and see what they do. So, like, I'd go to CT with them and, like, MRI with them. And then i go watch them, like, watch the labs get taken and see, like, who comes into the room and who leaves. Because if you guys haven't experienced a trauma case before, which... I don't know who has and who hasn't, but there's a lot of people there and like the trauma team is a lot of people. And so it can be really overwhelming for the person that's coming in, even if it's not like they need to go to surgery right now. It's still like a huge team and really overwhelming and kind of chaotic. So I thought it was really cool to be there and just kind of follow the patient around to be like, oh, I can understand the chaos. And like, it's nice to be like, okay, so you need to do these four things and you're going to meet a bunch of people. And you're really not going to know what's going on most of the time. And literally the only time where you'll get to, like, take a breath is when you're in, like, the imaging machine. I think that's something I didn't really, like, acknowledge beforehand because you just see, like, the glorified version on, like, Grey's Anatomy or something. I think the great thing about volunteering and and also shattering it, shadowing is... Just getting a preview of what all of this is is like. I find myself much more comfortable when I have some idea of what I'm getting myself into. And just being able to get that preview makes me be like, okay, I know what that is. I know what this is like. I I can I can picture myself there. I mean, it's why colleges, it's why, you know, we do tours and stuff like that so that you can you know, you can visualize something about what you're getting into. Yeah, I think that's kind of why, like, a lot of med schools really like to see shadowing. Like, you don't need, like, a lot, like, hundreds of hours or, like, even, like, 80. Like, I only had, like, 20-something coming in. But, like, I think just being able to see, like, can you see yourself doing this for the rest of your life? I think it's a very important thing to consider. And, like, in different specialties, not just following one doctor the whole time. Like, just getting that breadth of experience, I think, is very helpful. Anything else we want to say about pre-med activities i think in general like 
a lot of people just try to be like the perfect applicant you know they try to do yeah. these things and just check mark all the boxes but and it's, I, think, I can see why that's tempting i mean yeah. there it is somewhat of a numbers game right yeah. so you want to put but, yourself out there as the best possible applicant that makes yeah. a lot of sense in a way but yeah but and i mean there is no cool. such thing as the perfect applicant right, right? Yeah. unless it's fulfilling to you like if you just go by that mentality you're just going to be disappointed and also but. i sincerely think that a school like iowa anyway doesn't want perfection no in the sense that you're thinking you know the perfect student isn't somebody who checked all the boxes the perfect student is somebody who can who can do this i don't think i have a lot of regrets in life or whatever but i think the things i do regret are like times where like oh i didn't enter like that writing contest that a professor encouraged me to because i felt like it would take away time from doing like science classes or mm-hmm. whatever or i didn't like you know take certain opportunities that fell maybe a little bit outside of the mold and like I think there's it's so much pressure to get here right that everyone's kind of like I just need to get there I just need to make it in and then once then once I do that then everything will be okay and I can live my life or whatever and that's a this is a fantastic point you're making it's like you kind of have to live your life and like take the opportunities that you want to take before you get in and like you only get to do once yeah I think people start to define their lives by like at least especially in pre-med there was a lot of people that would just yeah live their lives according to the fact that they were pre-med yeah and then like you said they'd think that oh once you get in like can live my life and like you don't like that's never going to happen that's not how this works <laughs> like even in, we call like life. even in medical school you'll get here like you you got to try to not let anything like one thing define your life because then it's just you're gonna get burnt out yeah. so easily try like, your best to not get burnt out before you get here <laughs> i mean yeah just even when you're here just like do things outside of this because otherwise it's just like you gotta you gotta stay human otherwise it's not like you're just gonna get burnt out and it's not fun yeah Yeah. i think one thing that i i am definitely a victim of is like the whole i just need to do x and i can like relax later like i can be happy later like right now i have to grind but then it's like you constantly move the goal post I think the further along you get, you realize there is no such thing as free time. You know, <laughs> like yeah. I could be doing something for med school for 24 hours and I still wouldn't probably know everything. Right. And I think free time is a little deceptive because it makes you think that it's your time off. But no, it's time you have to make for the things you enjoy. Otherwise, there's always just going to be that feeling of, oh. I, I got to keep doing this, then I got to move to the next thing, then I got to move to the next thing. And so you're talking about being just as intentional about your leisure time as you are about your career. Exactly. I think yeah. both things are equally important. And yeah. like careers, medicine, super important. Get it. But like you're not going to be a good doctor if you're not happy. You're not going to be a good person if you're not happy. You know, both everything goes hand in hand. It's like I used to consider productivity just you know, finishing an assignment or studying or something. But then I was like, no, everything that I do can be productive. So it's like going on a walk and talking to my family. That's productive because it gets me some exercise and like lets me open up to somebody not in not in school and like connects me to the family. Or like if I want to play video games, it's productive because it's a break from school. If I want to like do yoga, it's just like it's productive because it's a little bit less stress. And I think once I kind of organized that thought into like, I'm not wasting time. Like I'm doing something productive for my mental health or my energy or something like that. I'm propping up the video game industry. You can, you can, <laughs> yeah. you can put it that way if you really need to. You know? like, yeah, I'm reflexes. productive. Yeah. <laughs>
Listeners, if you ask us a question, it means that I don't have to make something up to talk about on the show. And the show becomes what you want it to be. So send your questions to the shortcoats at gmail.com or leave a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about it on the show. Let's do this. Let's talk about some news. Should we talk about some news? We should. Death. (laughs) (laughs) Death to most people is a pretty clear line in the sand. Most people don't think of death as a line that moves. But of course, the definition has changed a few times in medical history. Like in medieval times, death was a constant companion of the living and life was considered preparation for the afterlife. So, you know, no big deal. Later on, death was defined as the cessation of circulation, right? And then it became the cessation of neural activity. Recently, some scientists may have moved the line yet again. A group of Yale researchers revived cells in pigs that had been dead for an hour after infusing a special solution they'd come up with into the piggies. Their hearts began to beat. Cells in their heart, liver, kidney, and brain started functioning. And unlike the control pigs that were tested after an hour of deadness with extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or ECMO, they never showed rigor mortis, swelling, or other damage caused by decay. This solution is called Organex. It contains nutrients, anti-inflammatories, and other drugs, including nerve blockers that they use to prevent the pigs from regaining, or they use to head off the, the even the small chance that they would regain consciousness, because that seems like a good thing. They were pretty concerned about that. I and mean, they were also, of course, anesthetized before being, before being killed and chilled to slow chemical reactions. So what they found is that individual brain cells came back to life, apparently, although there was no sign of coordination between them. This is wild to me. So they killed the pigs and then revived them? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Yeah. It but just, then they were knocked out still. They just, everything They were was, not allowed to regain uh, whatever passes for consciousness in pigs. Okay. So it was just like individual things happening in their body. Yes. They could, they could look, they could look at the function of the brain cells and say, okay, well these, these, there, there is life there. They're just not coordinating with each other like they would if they were alive. Yeah. They purposely didn't want them to to become conscious i guess this is what could they have made them conscious that's well that's the question isn't it (laughs) that's the question like how do you how do you they were like uh, they don't want to regain conscious i'm like why (laughs) because it would be kind of cruel i feel like that would be an ethical issue well killing pigs is an ethical issue on itself yeah if you're killing someone just or if you're killing a pig just to like bring like some cells back to life how is i mean i'm not saying well, the, i like, mean the purpose is the, the purpose of this research is in the name yeah. of the solution organex this is you know according to the researchers this is for the purposes of figuring out how to maintain cellular life so that transplantation can can be more easily done yeah. so maybe maybe there's a clue there as to why they didn't want them to regain consciousness on the other hand if you can figure out whether you can bring people back to life <laughs> so yeah well like okay mm-hmm. interesting interesting so right now it's more of like a how can we keep like organ donations good for longer rather than like unless unless endless. matt it's a post-rationalization yeah. Nothing better than giving another resource to like the ultra rich to <laughs> first you're going to have like the designer babies and next they're never going to die. <laughs> oh, 
One creepy yeah. finding, the Organex pigs jerked their heads when the researchers injected iodine contrast solution. They don't know why. And there was no brain involvement in this. No. I guess the control pigs did not did not do this. Yeah, the New York Times article I read made sure to point out that that kind of creepy little 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 fact there. So yeah, the next step is to see the if the pigs' organs function properly, which you know is a, isn't isn't would be the the most obvious benefit. Yeah, like there's just so many things that like. It's so far away. Like this kind of makes it seem like it's not that far yeah. away though. <laughs> but it's like it's only in pigs, first of all, like it's only like cells, like and also like is it safe? Like there's so many Yeah. Could be like a pet cemetery kind of situation. <laughs> yeah. I mean they they could come back with a demon inside yeah. them. That's why they didn't want them to regain consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, they want a Cujo situation. <laughs> <on her. laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, if they regain consciousness, then we all know the New York Times headline would have been Yale researchers create zombie pigs. <laughs> and that's not as good of a headline. I mean, maybe I it it's going to get more clicks. Yeah. Are there some like funguses that can like take control of insects' brains? Oh, I saw that. That's yeah. terrifying. Yeah. Can you imagine if that ever like became like a human thing so for people that don't know there's a type of fungus that can take control of insects brains and like they can lose like their body and their heart and basically everything and you can just see these like insects walking around yeah i I mean it's sort of the 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 goal of the fungus in my understanding is to have the insect reach a you know move to a place where the spread of the fungus is more optimal so, you know, maybe it causes the ant to climb up a tree and then go up there and where they can spread their... There are, I mean, they think there are toxins like toxoplasmosis, which makes... Let's see if I can remember. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure I remember the, the exact nature of this, but it basically affects behavior so that you are more risk tolerant so that you take more risks, I guess. And that somehow helps the, the, the bacteria in its life cycle. I don't know. I hate bacteria. I don't know. Like <laughs> bacteria, fungus, like the more that I learn about it, just the more terrified I am of everything. Bacteria are good, man. Kind of Some afraid. of them are. Kind of afraid to touch those plates we're working with. <laughs> I know. There's going like, to be one. You breathe really shallow like, when you're in the lab. There's going to be one my later. Mask away just in case something got. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're going to be working with bacteria that, like, every single person is going to be working with bacteria that causes sepsis. And I'm like, I don't want sepsis. <laughs> it's like, can we just simulate this online? <laughs> when they said in lecture, everyone in healthcare is at high risk for, like, catching tuberculosis. I was like, oh. sweet. Like, this hey. is one thing that undergrad <laughs> didn't prepare me for. <laughs> yeah, I think it's scary, the like organ X situation. Or I don't know. I mean, we've already had like a bioethics discussion about organ transplant and blah, blah, blah in, in school. And I feel like, I don't know, people get understandably uncomfortable with like moving the goalposts as far as you possibly can to be like, this person is still dead, even though they don't seem like it. I mean, think about this. Like, okay, if you're aware as a as a family member of somebody who wants to donate their organs and you're aware that they're going to use this solution, which could bring them back to life. We don't know because we haven't, you know, we haven't let that happen, right? 
Yeah. I mean, even if it's hogwash, right? Who as the as the family member of that patient could have concerns. <laughs> you know, like like A, are they gonna come back to life and be a pet cemetery kind of situation? <laughs> or are they going to be conscious and then we'll take out their organs and then you know, they'll be dead again. You know, like I could, I could see a few kind of unintended consequences yeah. socially. And I mean, we do talk about in that class as well, like how there are already certain measures that are taken that are more for the benefit of the organs than like the patient that is dying such that they want to preserve the organs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And this just seems like, I mean, the patient is dead time. usually. When, yeah. Right. I mean, there's no situation where somebody could argue I think the general rule is there's no situation in an organ donor situation. Somebody could argue that they're still alive in any meaningful sense, right? But I guess the the thing is a lot of times like you have the issue of do you treat the patient or do you treat the organ? So it's like when they have like, you know, an hour or two left to live, do you give them certain drugs to protect the organs and make them better transplant viable? Or do you treat like this page i think like a bigger thing is life and death is not as like black and white as i I feel like it i mean clearly it sounds like i mean we already learned that like like you mentioned like the absence of a pulse while people can be resuscitated the absence of like brain function while people can be brought back so it's like is it like x minutes without you know brain function is it and but then by that point it's like What's going to happen if they get revived? Will they, like, be comatose? Which I think some people can argue if comatose patients are, like... I think everyone can agree that they're alive, but to what extent, I think, is arguable. And, like, if you want to be an organ donor, then, on, like, a personal level, like, would you like to be pseudo-alive and risk your organs not having a second life? So there's a lot of really interesting things, and I feel like the idea of being brought back to life but to what extent is definitely going to cloud that conversation even more listeners if you ask us a question it means that i don't have to make something up to talk about on the show and the show becomes what you want it to be so send your questions to the shortcodes at gmail.com or leave a message at 347 short ct we'll talk about it on the show i think we can all agree that death is usually and still currently pretty bad news but there are lots of kinds of bad news some obvious others less so and doctors have to deliver that news not just empathetically but in a way that their patients can hear and understand so let's play a game that i'm calling bad news good news ariel if you would grab these two sets of cups next to you being careful not to spill them in these cups are medical words loosely speaking you can put them on the on the table there the first two cups a and b contain words that represent diseases and the second two Cups are full of words that represent breakthrough treatments for the condition. Working in pairs, the task for the doctor is to deliver the bad news to the patient. Patients, you'll ask the doctors, the doctor questions about the bad news, you know, things that you think patients might ask them about this condition. And uh, finally, doctors, you'll give them the good news, which is that you have this, you can treat them using the treatment. Are we ready? I think we're ready. Sure. All right, Matt. You're the doctor first. Ariel, you're the patient. Why don't you go ahead and select, just select from A and B. Don't, don't, don't share them. 
Okay. Ready? Yes. Begin. Hi, Ariel. How are you today? Hi. How do you know my name? Because I read it on the board outside. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hi, Dr. My name is Matt. Okay. Hi, Matt. How was your drive-in today? (laughs) (laughs) It was fine. I'm from Iowa, so... (laughs) I'm from Iowa, too. Wow, that's really Look at that. Look at all that rapport. So, you came in earlier... You guys are practically related now. You're sorry you got such rapport. I know. I know everything about her at this point. Yeah, yeah. Only important things, yeah. Only the important things. I also know that you have a disease. (laughs) (laughs) As you can tell, I'm a medical okay. student. <laughs> All right. So I understand that you came in because you were concerned about something. We have a little bit of bad news. We figured out what was going on. Is my cat possessing me with toxoplasmosis? I wish, but no. <laughs> I forgot to ask about your cat. How how are they? <laughs> good i think she's on her last legs of life though oh. so maybe not so good not so good well as long as the legs of life are four legs then i guess it's not all that bad they say cats have nine lives it's a weird <laughs> unfortunately weird maybe i don't building. you know um no it is not a tox- toxoplasmosis from your cat but it does look like we have diagnosed you with a vascular spinal cramp oh so that's why my back hurts all the time? We think so, yes. Okay. Does that mean I'm going to bleed or something? A vascular is like... What yeah, vascular is a blood thing. But the thing is, it's just cramping. It's not bleeding. So sometimes like, there's muscles that surround your blood vessels. And the ones specifically in your spine, they'll tense up and cramp. Kind of like a, like a calf cramp or a foot cramp. It's like that. And so it's actually interesting, obviously, in a sad way. Um, (laughs) where sorry I need to like you you have those you have those doctors are like look at this case it's like no it's not a case it's a it's a person yeah yeah but it's this really interesting thing where you know your the blood vessels that go to your spine end up cramping up and you don't get enough blood flow and so it can cause a lot of pain and I'm guessing that that pain is not only in your back but it can radiate down to like your legs and your like the muscles in your back but I think we finally were able to kind of get to the bottom line of it and that it's an issue of vascular spinal cramping. What does this mean for my life? Like, Am I going to die? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, only time will tell. I'm sure one day you'll die. <laughs> I think the biggest thing is if you haven't started experiencing yet, it yet, you'll get some pain. You might get a little, little, little bit of... Uh, like you might lose some sensitivity in certain areas so if you notice yourself going numb or anything that's definitely a concern go to the er and be like yeah i have a vascular spinal cramp so i know that these symptoms are kind of weird but i do have a diagnosis for it but i don't think it's gonna be deadly i hope it's not deadly but unfortunately i'm not sure how we can treat it yes you are you have a breakthrough treatment i've just been told that we have a breakthrough treatment (laughs) What's is it? And organized? now you now you choose from C and D. My favorite part about that was every time he said vascular spinal cramp, you looked at you looked at the paper right before it. I'm practicing. I'm practicing for being a doctor when they have to look no matter what. 
All right. Oh, I'm so hopeful. Well, you should be hopeful because I have some good news for you. Oh, goody. <laughs> There's this really new, this really new treatment for vascular spinal cramp called the internal organ ventricular version. Mm. Wow. Say that five times fast. No. Okay. Um, so the internal organ ventricular version, in lack of better terms, just kind of jostles all everything around in there. <laughs> so it was this really cool study actually from Iowa, which is where I'm from, and you too, <laughs> um, which is amazing. Gotta love, gotta love Iowa. But it's this cool thing where like, jostling your internal organs around giving them a little ventricular version can actually help soothe the effects of the cramping the way that they think that this works which i need to definitely do a little bit more reading on this topic but by kind of changing changing the vibes you could say of the internal organs the vibes yeah i mean making the vibes better is never a bad thing but especially with the internal organs they think that if you can create a ventricular version on them that it will relieve a lot of the symptoms of the cramping, make it not as severe. Kind of, there's some preliminary studies that say it might even be able to go away entirely. Oh, um, wow. So. I have questions. How does ventricular, internal organ ventricular version, how does that, how, how do you achieve that? Good question. I will definitely need to do some more reading. I guess I'm taking the role of the companion of the person who is in the exam room with you. The wife. Yeah. Yes. The, <laughs> Dave is the, the wife or the, the husband, husband the concern, significant the other, the spouse. family member. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, the ventricular version is this really interesting new technique. I am not the one that te- that does it. It's more for like specialized ventricular version doc. So I don't know as much as I should. That being said, I will definitely get all the research. I'll be able to send you to the people that know everything about internal organ ventricular versions. There must be something you can tell us right now, Doctor. I thought I read about it, or maybe my cousin's neighbor's wife's post office person had it, but something Uh, where, like, I thought I read they tested it on pigs where, like, they strap them down to a board and then rotate them around a hundred times really fast. I mean, then... that would that would be a good starting point. Hopefully we, <laughs> hopefully we wouldn't do that for you. But I know like on a broader sense, pigs are used a lot in medical research because their organs are very similarly shaped and sized to us. That being said, there's still a couple questions about like, did all the pigs have, have vascular spinal cramping or was it more just a practice in efficacy? But it looks like all of the signs point to this being a really successful, really successful procedure. Well, that sounds sounds like something we would want to, yeah, look Thank into. Thank you, Matt. Of course, <laughs> we will get you. We will get you the people you need. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. Hopefully, my insurance will cover this. Oh, you know it won't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, excellent work. Excellent fantastic. work. Let's see who wants to be the doctor next. Triu is ready to diagnose Jacob. Hey, man, how was your daughter's wedding? <laughs> <laughs> I'm 22, man. I don't got no daughter. Oh, um, must be mixing you up with... Anyways. <laughs> how, how are you doing today? I just got beaten by a test. Been there, my man. Been there. <laughs> So uh, the reason we called you in today is because... Poor built. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you need. We have some bad news for you. 
You know, my doctor failed the test. I can neither confirm nor deny that. But <laughs> so we've noticed you've been coming here for quite a while, and I know this has been a has been bothering you for such a long time. And I think we we finally got an answer as to what's wrong with you. And you've been diagnosed with disappearing pubic lice. <laughs> <laughs> is that why it's always itchy down there? Yes, but that's why the itching is coming and going, and that's the issue that we need to get to the heart of right here. Is I don't know if you've noticed this, but there'll be times when it's really bad, like really itchy. Maybe that's why you failed the exam today. Was it just itching really bad? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, honest. Yeah. I mean, you know, feel free, but you know, <laughs> feel free. <laughs> feel free to tell me if that's why it was. I'm, I'm your doctor. And I'll, I'll keep. <laughs> but yeah, so I can imagine this just. The fact that it's coming and going, coming and going, and just, it's got to be frustrating. I know that sucks, man. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely interrupting my sleep. Just got a scratch down there. <laughs> How often would you say this happens to you? Like every night, like eight hours a night, hours I'd a say. Night. So is it like eight hours on, eight hours out, off? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, luckily, I think uh, we may have a cure. Cure, you say, doctor? A cure. So, the care for <laughs> the care for this is a procedure known as foramen emesis. Have you ever heard of that? What? <laughs> <laughs> foramen emesis. <laughs> foramen emesis. Yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? Am I pronouncing it wrong? Uh, yeah, I think pronounce both bad. words foramen wrong. Foramen emesis. It's fine. It's fine if you want to pronounce it. It was for the bit, I promise. <laughs> Foramen emesis. Foramen emesis. I think it's pronounced foramen. Foramen. For yes. Foramen. Foramen. Foramen emesis is how you pronounce it. So have you heard of that? Isn't like the foramen in the skull? Yeah. So there's you know. Do you know what em- emesis emesis is? Is that when they stick something up your butt? <laughs> That's enema. <laughs> Very close guess. Very close guess. But actually, we're going the other direction. And it's actually when you vomit stuff out. So, foramen are holes in your body, right? Now, all these holes have different content. <laughs> content. So, the, <laughs> the process behind this is that if you can get... If you can just start vomiting... <laughs> Different parts of these holes out of your body. <laughs> this is gross. Exa- that's the point. Yeah. It's so gross that the lice will just go away permanently. They're, ah. <laughs> They're never going to want to come back. That really makes a lot of sense, dear. Yeah. Exactly. What kind of holes are we talking about? Because <laughs> aren't there a lot of holes, doctor? I mean, there's more than just. You know, like the mouth and the nose, right? Well, what holes do you think I'm thinking of? That's kind of a personal question. <laughs> exactly. Well, I don't want to be too crude, but you know, you have pubic lice. All the holes. Yeah. All the holes. We're talking holes. like pores and. No, 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 no. Oh. We're talking orifices or openings. <laughs> but aren't pores openings? But I've look, pores are small. doctor. Yeah. Just lay it out for us. Level with us. I mean, it sounds to me like my dear, dear Jacob 
is going to be like exploding with goo. You're not far off. Okay. <laughs> That is what we're trying to achieve. <laughs> I see, I see. And you know, the thing is, when you're exploding with these goo, right? Scientifically. Goos. Goos. Out of everywhere, out of every hole in your body, there's all this stuff coming out, right? It's acidic. <laughs> <laughs> Guess what acid does? It oh. kills stuff. Kills lice. There you go. Oh. <laughs> Do you see what we're going for here? Sounds like we should e- explore this option. Deer, maybe, but can is we there just... any is there anything that makes you vomit, like a lot, like Cardi B rap songs or you know something, disappearing pubic lice? I don't remember. I'm Nothing in your fans. life that just grosses you out. I'm pretty. I'm pretty strong-willed. Would you want to take the exam you took again this morning? Ugh. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> There's the first thought. So maybe just think about that over and over again until, you know, stuff stuff starts coming out. (laughs) There you go. Well done, gentlemen. Well done. Good and bad news delivered. (laughs) All right, let's try this. Jacob, you are the doctor, and uh, let's have Matt be the patient. Good afternoon, Mr. Anglican, or what do you prefer to be called? Matt's fine. All right, Matt. How are you doing today? I also took the MOHD4 test, so doing doing fine. I share your pain, brother. <laughs> so, I know you came in today with symptoms of something. <laughs> I did come in with symptoms, you're right. And so we actually have a diagnosis for you. I'm sorry to tell you, but you have nasal clamping. Nasal clamping? Nasal clamping. Well, that explains why I can't breathe through my nose very well. I know, it's just like your nasal muscles, they just start clamping shut, and it just prevents you from breathing, so... Interesting. I always thought it was the clothespin I used, but I guess not. (laughs) Uh, I don't know about the efficacy of... Do clothespin really close the nose? I've been reading some scientific studies, and we have mixed results. Interesting. Maybe (laughs) that'll have to change everything. So tell me more about my nasal clamping. Yeah, so basically, like, in your nose, there's muscles made of muscle fibers. And then when they contract, they just close and clamp. And then so it closes off the passages in your nose so you can't get air through your nose down to your lungs and out. Interesting. Is there anything, is there any bad side effects or do I just have to be a mouth breather for the rest of my life? Unfortunately, with mouth breathing, you always run the risk of like dry mouth and like you can't like warm up cold air so it might cause some lung irritation. But overall... As long as your mouth is still clear, don't choke on anything, like, there's no, like, permanent side effects as far as I'm aware of. Well, I don't know how I feel about breathing through my mouth. I was told that you can swallow up to eight spiders a year. 
and I don't want to have my mouth open all the time because that number might go up. So, like, is there anything (laughs) I can do to be able to breathe through my nose again? On the plus side, honey, you've been complaining about, you know, about how you don't like food anymore. So at least you, if you were consuming spiders all the time in your sleep, think of how much time you would gain in your day. That's true. That'd be a lot of calories. Maybe what can you tell me that would convince me maybe to not eat spiders or at least like have the spiders go through my nose rather than my mouth all the time? Well, actually eating spiders has actually been shown to be quite healthy for you. Like it's a good source of protein and, but I know the, the idea of eating spiders is not doesn't sound like it's for everyone Doc. yeah no, it's, it is. it's pretty icky is there anything is there any treatments for this problem yeah so there's actually a brand new treatment actually newly released that has limited that's just brand new and the studies have come out and it is called <laughs> transinguinal nasal interfacing <laughs> oh <laughs> what is that so interesting <laughs> It's like they put in like a wireless receiver into your inguinal canal. What your your what? Your inguinal canal. Sorry. What what's an inguinal? Canal? It's like in your pelvis. Uh huh. Yeah. And then the wireless thing sends signals up to your nose. That's why it's called nasal interfacing because it like interfaces oh. with another thing in your nose, and that just helps cure all the clamping that's happening. Wow. So, so you're telling me that they're going to put something in my pelvis that then talks to my nose muscles? Yeah. It's brand new technology. Interesting. I don't really know how it works too much. I've done a little bit of preliminary research into the literature, but I think... You're talking about Googling, aren't you, doctor? No, we we only use PubMed and other trusted (laughs) medical sources journals here. Okay. So why did God choose the inguinal canal if it just interface from anywhere? That's a good question, and I'm not quite sure what to tell you, Matt. But the researchers who had this brilliant idea must have had a reason for trying to inject inject it into the pelvis instead of just the nose. Matt, honey, I, I think that's reason enough. They had a reason. We that's don't need to know true. the answer. <laughs> we don't need to know the real answer. I mean, if, 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 if somebody that I know says it's a good idea, then I say it's a good idea, too. I mean, it's, I, I mean, it sounds like it's just a simple matter of putting something in your groin that talks to your nose. That does sound very simple. Yeah. And preliminary studies have shown a 98% efficacy for Ooh. the treatment. So 98% is a large number. It's quite high with a sample size of like 10. But <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> well, I think we should go through with it, dear. You're... Your nasal clamp. Sometimes you get your finger stuck up there. It just gets clamped off. It's just clamped down, and then it's embarrassing. I just want to, like, pick my nose in peace, and then it closes, and it's just there for, like, hours. Yeah, and then we go out to dinner and stuff like that, (laughs) and it's just kind of... 
Yeah. It's, it's not great. I haven't learned how to use my left hand for using a fork yet. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> I think we have. I think we have to go through with it. It's not. It's not worth it. Excellent and scene. Well done. <laughs> when I first saw that, I thought you were gonna like make him put his like. Yeah, that's what I thought it was supposed to, to be. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, if you rub your pelvis to your nose, you know, <laughs> it'll open it right up. <laughs> Ariel, do you want to be the? Do you want to be the? I would the love PA? to. I'll be the PA. Am I the patient? I, I yeah, think I think so. I think we gotta have try you be the patient. Okay. Yay! Hello, good afternoon. Hello. My name is Ariel. I will be the PA doing your visit today. <laughs> I have your name listed here as Shirayu. Is that correct? Is no, that so how it. you would prefer to be addressed? Yeah. So how was your drive in today? <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Parking was kind of Yeah. Parking was terrible, yeah. but it always is. Yeah, know. it sucks. How's your pet parakeet doing? He's actually doing pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's I, really good. Yeah. The other day. He's kind of an idiot though. So sometimes <laughs> <laughs> Like I don't think he realizes that glass doors aren't, you know, they're glass doors. Yeah. So I, I have him stationed right outside like my patio door, but he just keeps flying into the glass every time. Oh, I have that problem too. Yeah. Yeah. Other than that, he's fantastic. All right. <laughs> so today we're just doing a very routine perineum physical. Is that correct? <laughs> you said you had some itching, burning, goo, etc. Goo? <laughs> Honey, you never told me about your perineal goo. You, d- you didn't see it? I, I don't know. I guess not. I thought it was normal. <laughs> I've only been with a few people. <laughs> All right. and There's goo. Oh. There's a lot of it. Dave, who's accompanying you today, can be next. Next, We'll see when we can fit you in for a perineum <laughs> physical. You're right. I'm sorry. I'll just I'll be, I'll be quiet over here. No, it's okay. It's just... Yeah, we can do some education about that okay. in a bit. But okay. so, yeah, I'll just ask you to, you know, put on this gown that my medical assistant has nicely laid out here and then just kind of turn around, you know, just nicely kind of take a relaxing rest on the exam table. <laughs> and we'll just take a look at your perineum and see what's going on. Well, um, is this where I have to put my feet on those little hook things, you know? on the table no 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 no. you just stand there and stand there we examine your perineum and (laughs) yeah i mean it seems like what is my perineum that's a good point because i (laughs) i don't think many patients know i I mean i was i was thinking she she was talking about the goo that came out of your face but yeah there's 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 there there's a goo coming out of everywhere so (laughs) oh no another goo out of everywhere situation okay so your perineum is around your anal region hmm. oh, oh that oh now i remember okay <laughs> now i remember clear. that goo <laughs> anyway so yeah it seems I'll, like I'll, I'll, this new thing it's called foramen emesis <laughs> oh, okay <laughs> that's maybe contributing to yeah. it but yeah it seems like there might be some kind of genetic you know abnormality you have here and that's contributing to the the goo itching oh, burning yeah. my dad told me about that and once. i think it occasional just runs in the disappearing family. lice yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay yeah. okay so we actually do have a treatment for this genetic abnormality that can kind of help resolve some of those symptoms oh thank god because the laundry 
bill is just out of control. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But the amount of disinfecting wipes we've gone through just ridiculous. It's prohibitively expensive. Yeah, keeping Clorox in business. Well, I what's understand. the treatment? Yeah, PA. So let's talk about the treatment. <laughs> PA area. <laughs> the treatment is outpatient testing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the treatment? (laughs) So basically what we're going to do is we're just going to basically have you keep coming in, you know, every three months or so. If it's, you know, worse, you can come in more often, more frequently. But we'll just have a standing appointment for you every three months. And we'll just kind of have, you know, it'll probably be a nurse visit. And we'll have, you know, one of our nurses just kind of do a quick little swab visual examination you can kind of report your symptoms if things seem like they're more concerning you know i or, or one of the other providers will kind of come in and and damage control as much as we can <laughs> damage control <laughs> what do you think is going on <laughs> just putting out the fire <laughs> but you know otherwise we'll just kind of keep we'll just monitor you know the situation the levels of everything may do a culture of some of the goo if we feel like that's is you know it, necessary. Is it ever going to go away? I think it it doesn't seem like this is something that will resolve due to the underlying genetic causes for it, you know, or at least genetic contribution for it. So, you know, unfortunately this is kind of something that just you may have to accept and you know Dave may also have to accept that a part of your shared life but you can plenty of patients live very happy long healthy fulfilled lives with perineum physical <laughs> symptoms <laughs> it's okay honey we'll we'll learn to live with it i mean if it means that we have to have separate you know beds it's fine it's fine. I love you. <laughs> I love you as you are. Goo and all. That's beautiful. Yeah. So are there any questions or concerns you have for me before I take my leave and wash my hands three times? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you were very thorough and clearly knew what you were talking about. So, Thank you. Yeah, I am a professional. <laughs> Excellent. I think you've all done very, very well. I think that that was the most clearly, like, an actual thing that would happen. Like, not in, like, the... But, like, what are you going to do to treat this doctor or PA? Well, we're going to have you come in every three months. (laughs) And we're going to do nothing for you other than give you a bill. Good luck. What's the treatment? Outpatient testing. (laughs) We're excited because we need a new boat. (laughs) Well, very good. That's our show, uh, you, Ariel, Jacob. Thanks for being on the show with me today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. And what kind of cranial rectal inversion would I be if I didn't (laughs) thank you, Shortcoats, for making us a part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube. Thank you to my co-producer, Matt Engelkin, and to this week's editors, Katie Hyam Kessler and Angela Mahoney. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week.
Hi, Shortcoats. Look, life in medical education, life in America, life in the world is often difficult. And I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use. But the bottom line is that for what it's worth, I see you. I know you're out there. I wish I could do more. Maybe I can in ways that I don't understand yet or know about. But I see you and I'm glad you're here and other people are too. This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com.